Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Good evening and welcome. My name is Fred Paul and you are watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. Well, Dan Andrews is holding out to become the Teruo Nakamura of the COVID panic. The Japanese World War II soldier who didn't surrender until 29 years after the Japanese Imperial forces had lost the war and everyone else had long since got on with rebuilding the world. Andrews' press conference this week rehashed the same lines that helped him look like a fearless warrior last year, but now sound like Nakamura running out of the jungle waving a rusty bayonet and yelling, long live the emperor. Let's go through some of his signature statements. Uh, what I will not do, though, uh, is uh, apologise for doing everything possible to save lives. Dan Andrews' greatest skill, if it is such a thing, is to make a negative question sound like a humble inquiry into his formidable bravery and brilliance. He's also the master of the non secateur. If he did everything possible to save lives, then of course he wouldn't need to apologise. To do so wouldn't make sense. But making sense isn't one of Dan's strong points. Vaccines work. And if you're not up to date, if you need your third or your fourth dose, or even if you've not yet got vaccinated, please talk to your GP. Please put your faith in science. Yeah, we'll put our faith in science, Dan. The science says the vaccines don't work. As the Daily Skeptic reported yesterday, quote, two doses of COVID-19 vaccine make you 44% more likely to be infected, a study from Oxford University has found, unquote. Even Dan himself caught COVID in March this year. But by saying vaccines work, Dan didn't actually mean they stop you catching the virus. Oh no, that fiction from early on in the vaccine rollout has been so thoroughly disproven that not even Dan Nakamura Andrews is repeating that one anymore. No, they just supposedly stop you getting very sick from the virus. But what about the side effects, Dan? Here's the latest high-profile medical professional to switch sides. So I ordered a post-mortem, and the post-mortem findings shocked me. He had two severe narrowings in his arteries, which didn't make sense. I knew his medical history, I knew his cardiac status, everything. 
thought, okay, sometimes these things happen, but it didn't make sense to me. A few months later, several bits of data started to emerge that suggested that the actual COVID mRNA vaccines increase coronary inflammation. That's Dr. Malotra from the UK, and he is now calling for the immediate suspension of vaccines. He was, by the way, one of the first people in the UK to be uh, in, in, um, vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine. But while we're putting our faith in the science, as Andrew, Andrews says we should, here are some findings from the peer-reviewed vaccine journal, which reviewed the data for the trials for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. It found Pfizer increased a person's risk of a serious adverse effect by 35% and Moderna by 6%. So what's a serious adverse event, you ask? Well, it includes death, life-threatening illness, hospitalization or prolongation of hospitalization, permanent disability, congenital anomaly and birth defect. Pretty serious stuff. But enough about the science. What about the tough decisions Dan was forced to make during the past two years? I accept that many of the decisions that had to be made, not just in Melbourne and Victoria, but across our country, uh, were very, very challenging. Very challenging. That caused harm and distress? Well, uh, they were very challenging. And that's why we provided support, uh, a lot of support, uh, to uh, all of those Victorians and indeed other governments for their citizens who were impacted by this one in 100 year event. An event, huh? Notice how he calls it an event, not a pandemic. That's because everyone now knows the decisions Andrews and other politicians made were in response to a virus whose lethality they were deliberately overstating. It's become a textbook political sleight of hand. Create a problem, then portray yourself as the messiah by magnanimously providing a solution. Andrews is so magnanimous that he even wanted to help non-Victorians. Thanks, but no thanks, Dan. Then he played the strangest card of all, the one where he was the bloke who kept the state of Victoria together during a tough time. And that's what makes, I think, all of us as Victorians so proud to think that we have got through this event because we stuck together, because we looked out for each other, because we had that that faith in science, as well as compassion. I think we've demonstrated to, well, if I could just finish the answer, uh, I'll make the point again, as I have many times, but you can't make this point enough. Victorians have demonstrated to other states who thought taking pot shots at us was a good thing to do. And indeed, we've just demonstrated for everyone that when we stick together, we can achieve anything. Yeah, you can't make this point often enough either, Dan. By sticking together, he means dobbing in your neighbours. He means cops arresting a pregnant woman at home in her dressing gown. He means shooting unarmed citizens with rubber bullets in the street for peacefully protesting. He means closing borders on a whim and locking up Victorians who had the audacity to want to return to their homes. And he means cops slamming a man's head into the concrete floor of a train station. You get the picture. Andrews went on to say the whole disaster was caused by a lack of vaccines, which of course wasn't his fault. It was the federal government's. And herein lies Andrew's ultimate flaw. Andrews obviously thinks he is a modern Moses leading the Victorianite exodus from the COVID desert, but still blames others when things go wrong. 
Leaders don't do that. History shows that people who pursue excessive power always come a cropper this way. There's a fantastic new book about COVID called The Psychology of Totalitarianism by Belgian psychologist Matthias Desmet. It's a bit heavy, and so it's not for everyone, but there is one line in it that sums up Andrews very well. Quote, the person who wants to be in the position of the absolute master falls into errors and inconsistencies and eventually into outright lies and deceit, unquote. Andrew's errors and inconsistencies have been obvious for months, if not years, and now his lies are starting to show as well. It's going to be a struggle for him to keep a lid on them between now and the state election on November 26. Well, remember when flying was a glamorous activity? When men would wear suits and women would do their hair and makeup and put on their best dress? It was a wonderful era that Virgin Australia tried to capture, mostly with success, in this stylish advertisement from 2011. Well, those times are back. Only now, it's the men wearing the skirts and the women donning the suits. Virgin Atlantic has announced it will allow staff to cross-dress so they can, according to a spokesman, embrace their individuality and their true selves at work." Unquote. Well, you'll excuse me if I don't fly Virgin Atlantic from now on, just in case one of the baggage handlers decides his true self is the pilot of an A380. That's not all Virgin Atlantic is doing to raise the woke standards of flying. It has also relaxed its tattoo policy, which is meant to make us all feel relaxed and comfortable but will probably do exactly the opposite. If you'll pardon my amused cynicism, the tattoo policy gives Virgin Atlantic trolley dollies a slight advantage over unstickered passengers who dare to complain about the airline's cramped seats and bad food or try to sneak into the, from economy into the first-class bathrooms. But there won't be any complaints about pronouns. Virgin Atlantic has jumped that shark as well, giving passengers the option to describe themselves as them, they, she, jay, or it. Perhaps Virgin itself should also change its pronouns. Given the adage of our times is, go woke, go broke, might I suggest it changes them from now on to was and were. Well, let's go to my usual Thursday chat with Nick Cater, the head of the Menzies Research Centre and the star of Nick Cater's Battleground every Friday night here on ADH TV. Nick, welcome. Great to be here again, Fred. Thank you. Good to have you. Now, first topic for discussion today is the Anti-Corruption Commission being touted <laughs> in Canberra. I mean, what startles me most is that they are so emphatic that there is all this corruption that needs to be weeded out. If they know, especially Albo, who's the main advocate for it, if he's so sure there's so much corruption going on in Canberra, why doesn't he just tell the federal cops about it? Well, that's right. I mean, actually, there's no apparent 
under, undercurrent of crime that's going on in the federal parliament that I can see. I mean, there's a lot of pretty, you know, poor government going on. There's a lot of sort of half-hearted representation of constituents going on. But, you know, criminal, corrupt activity, where's the evidence? But because they go with this because it's just, you know, they know they're going to get popular support. People have a pretty low opinion of politicians in general and, uh, and that they probably think, well, maybe they are up to something. But it, 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 you and I know the pitfalls of this. These <laughs> yes. commissions just get carried away. It, it, it's like, you remember they sent Hans Blick to investigate weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And he could hardly come back and say, I haven't found any. He just said, well, I've got to keep looking harder. And it's always the way, isn't it? You put somebody on a case, they'll just keep digging. So, Hans Blix, who, of course, was one of the stars of Team America, yes, team. the great movie, he, he threatened, to, threatened to write angry letters to uh, North Korea for uh, for not being able to find <laughs> weapons of mass destruction. I think this, I think this uh, crime commission will do more than write angry letters. But I actually, Nick, I think that's half the appeal to the punters mm. without sounding too uh, dismissive of, of, uh, of, you know, the Australian public. But, you know, on one hand, as you say, this proposal promises to weed out corruption at the highest level, but it also promises to provide people with entertainment while other people's reputations are dragged through the mud, it actually makes good television. Yeah, it's like the old medieval town square, isn't it? Where you put somebody in the stocks, you know, and people will throw rotten apples at them, you know. That's what it's like. But I mean, if they want, if they were serious about, you know, getting rid of corruption and vested interests in Canberra right now, the first place you'd look is the relationship between the trade unions and the government. Absolutely. The, the trade unions bankrolled Albany Albanese's campaign by millions of dollars. And the first thing he did was get rid of the uh, um, the ABCC. Exactly. Making it easy for the unions to go around bullying uh, workers and bosses to pursue these unrealistic claims. So, yeah, I mean, because that never comes into it, does it? But if you want to look at the biggest evidence of vested interest at work right now, it is that. And the unions paid this money up front to get the Albanese government in, and, and now they're looking for their return and they're getting it. Well, my theory from a political perspective is that any government that can't find solutions to real problems will find imaginary problems and pretend it can solve them instead. Is that right? I think that's right. I, mean, I think they'll come onto the polling in a minute, but I just don't think that a, a, a independent commission against corruption in Canberra is really at the top of people's minds right now when inflation's heading to 8% by Christmas and mortgage rates to 6%. I, I really don't think this is just something that people sit around the kitchen table worrying about. Well, let's talk about that polling because you've got, you've just done some polling this week. Talk us through it. Well, I just thought after four months, you know, he's had time, Anthony Albanese's had time to settle into that big chair. Uh, what should he be doing? I mean, is he in touch with what people want? So he asked people, what's the most important thing the federal government should be concentrating on what right now? And we did, we got Compass Polling, you know, brilliant polling company. They, they asked a thousand people that question. Three people came back and said, the voice to parliament. That's the most important thing. <laughs> Three. We, we know who they are. Two of them were Labour voters and one was Green. So uh, the, the, ref, the referendum on the Republic, more than double the support. Seven <laughs> out of a thousand thought the referendum or the the thing we've talked about like nothing else for the last fortnight. Most people that doesn't cross their radar 
climate change, now we're getting somewhere. 10% said climate change. But, you know, it really, all that's dwarfed into insignificance when you get to the number one issue, which I bet you guess what that is. It's obvious, right? Inflation, Inflation. exactly. 75% yeah. of people named cost of living issues as the number one concern, whether it's fuel, petrol, whether it's uh, energy prices, or just the cost of living generally. Uh, housing prices, of course, that's what is number one for 75% of people, but you don't really have the government talking too much about it, do you? Well, Scott Morrison left a little ticking time bomb behind when he uh, reduced the fuel excise and then uh, made sure the incoming government was gonna wear the, uh, wear the opprobrium for it going back up, which happened this morning. Yeah, that, that's right. Now, I don't know, I haven't been to the pumps recently, but you'd think that 20%, 20 cents or was it? Uh, 25, 25 cents a litre. Go on again, just much, they'll put it on much more quickly than they took it off, of course, when the levy came down. And this, this is going to hit people, right? I mean, you're paying $2 for a, a litre of diesel and you're a tradie living out, you know, somewhere in the western suburbs or somewhere and you have to, you know, this is real money off people's businesses and real money Real pressure on the on the public on on the on the on the, on the family purse for for that, for people like that. It, it probably doesn't touch people in Mossman or or, or Turak, you know, where they. they well, let's talk about interest rates. Yeah, well, this is the other thing, interest rates. So you you've got you're going to have a chat to, uh, tomorrow with Adam Crichton of the Australian. Mm. What's he saying about interest rates? Well, Adam's one of the smartest guys in the world when it comes to the economy for my mind. And the reason for that is he can actually explain it. There's a lot of people who seem to know a lot. but So he's, I always go to him on these things and I tested my theory with him that, you know, monetary policy is, is just a form of legalised torture. You know, sticking up interest rates to fight, to fight inflation is, is only doing one thing and that's the aim is to cause pain to stop people spending more money. And the government could, of course, stop spending money itself, but that would cause it a little bit of discomfort. So all the pain goes on on interest rates and specifically on mortgage, people with mortgages. I mean, you, if you're in a fortunate enough position to pay it off your house, you won't even feel these mortgage rate rises. But for, you know, in certain parts of Australia where, you know, 90% of ho homeowners have a mortgage, places like Oran Park, which I picked out out there in the western suburbs, this is going to have a devastating effect. So some people get to get to really suffer when you yank up interest rates. Others not so much, and it's not the people. You know, it's not the wealthiest who get hit. Exactly. The line well, this reminds me of what happened during that job summit in Canberra a couple of uh, about a month or so ago. In the middle of that job summit, there was a nationwide strike of childcare workers. Mm -hmm. Now, the people at that job summit would have just, you know, that, that would have water off a duck's back to them. I mean, why would they care about it? But you are taught, people who are affected by a, the strike of childcare workers are people who are probably in the most stressful stage of life. You know, Correct. they're both working, they've got young kids, they've probably never had kids before, you know, it, this is all new to them. And then in the middle of that, the childcare centre closes down. What the hell are they meant to do? And it's the same. I mean, these are the same people who are, as you point out, quite rightly, these is, this is the same demographic that is most directly and most severely affected by every increase in interest rates. They are. I mean, you, the, the, the numbers are stark. $1,400 will be the increase per month 
on the average New South Wales mortgage by the end of the end of the year. You know, what sort of family, even a family, you know, reasonably comfortably off on two incomes, can find fourteen hundred dollars to spare each month on top of petrol, on top of energy price, on top of the kids' shoes. Something has to give, right? And 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 yet it's so concentrated in those areas. And you're dead right. Fred, it, it always affects those people. Labor's supposed to be the party that cares about those people, but no. And, they, and it, they're exactly the people who took a real hit during COVID, aren't they? You know, they're the ones that they, if, when the schools closed because the teachers decided they didn't want to teach, you know, they're the ones that have to stay off work to look after the kids because they can't afford uh, childcare. They're the ones who had jobs that you couldn't do on a laptop, you know, truck drivers, delivery people. They had to get out and about in this and they were the ones often hit by losing wages. So it's a desperately, um, I, I, I feel it's getting worse. The laptop class sort of run the joint and the, the kind of schemes they come up with never affect them. They never have to pay the price Oh, don't get me started on climate change, by the way. <laughs> no, but we could be here all night. they never have to make the price of, that, of their own decisions. <laughs> well, that, that, that sort of segues into another uh, essential topic at the moment, and that is housing, which is becoming a, a hell of a crisis at the moment. There was a nation, uh, housing minister conference uh, nationwide from all the states and the federal minister in July, which achieved nothing. And then last week, uh, Queensland, they had a, uh, a round table that, that found 200 beds for homeless people at a university college and didn't do much else <laughs> except for announce another conference. But the thing about housing that I find most notable, Nick, is that I'm the son of a builder and I come from Western Australia where, where you know, we used to look at the, the, the area at the edge of the suburbs and, you know, Australians used to anyway, and look at it and go, well, we could clear that and we could turn it into a good suburb and families could, you yeah. know, people could raise families here. And I actually used to work on building sites like that back in the 70s and 80s. And it was actually part of our culture. It was our can-do culture. We, you know, look at something where it's just arid bush and think, well, let's turn it into homes and roads and schools. But Australia just doesn't have that mentality anymore, does it? No. And the, the reason I bring it up is that the problem with housing is supply. It's as simple as that. Spot on, Fred. And, and what, you know, what, what's happened to the, the Australian dream of the quarter acre block? When Anastasia Palaszczuk, she's been wrestling with this housing question up there, last week they came out and said, well, they're going to fix it. It's going to be OK to rent out a granny flat. <laughs> a granny flat? You know, I mean, it, it, it's getting smaller and smaller, isn't it? It's going to be like that Monty Python sketch soon. You know, you'll be <laughs> renting out a cardboard box. <laughs> exactly. Oh, luxury. <laughs> luxury. Yeah. But you're, you're right, but, we've but got Nick, the why is it? Why is the government deciding whether or not you can rent out your granny flat anyway? It's your Precisely. granny flat. Precisely, but yeah. you know, what are you going to do with granny if you decide to rent out a flat? You know? <laughs> exactly. But we shouldn't well, be yes. in this position, should we, Fred? No. You're exactly right. We should have sensible policies that allow supply of housing to increase with the population instead of the regulation and the cost, of course, as you know. I mean, it costs far, far many more times for the block of land it, nowadays than the house. I mean, the house costs the actual house, you know, uh, it's probably not increased that much. 
uh, beyond inflation since you were building them. Yes. They're, they're possibly a bit more reliable now. <laughs> <laughs> they don't fall down as much. That's right. Um, now, let's move on to CPAC. This is just the best conference. I, w I went briefly to the last one in 2019 and, uh, and it, th there were a few protesters out the front. I think there's going to be a few more this time. But it was uh, its return has been postponed by COVID, but it's finally coming back to Sydney mm. this weekend. What are, you, what are the highlights for you, Nick? Well, the great thing about it, Fred, is that, you know, the, the, the protesters think this is dreadful sort of conservative conspiracy. It's not. I mean, there's all sorts of voices come along to, to CPAC, which is what I'm looking forward to, including Michael Schellenberger, who was on with Alan Jones recently. And, and Alan, um, Schellenberger, you know, he's a, a, an environmentalist from, from going years back. Uh, he's just a sensible one who looks for pragmatic solutions. Uh, and uh, Zion Lights is the other person from that zone who should be there. She used to be a spokeswoman, would you believe, for Extinction Rebellion. You know, the people that, that used to glue themselves to the road and climb on top of trains and all sorts. Uh, but she's, she's of the, I don't think she's changed her views. I mean, bless her, she still thinks, you know, the planet's in, in dire straits and we need to do something, but she's going to do something practical about it, you know. So that, that's the side of things I look forward to, not necessarily people, old, uh, uh, old you know, far-right people like you and I. You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the range of experience. And, and, but it, that draws it out, doesn't it? The left these days, or the woke left, they're not interested in practical solutions. It's all just about being the sort of people that care about the Barrier Reef or the sort of people who care about climate change rather than people who just get off get off their asses and do something about it. Exactly. So, as the, as, well, I interviewed Zeon Lights a couple of weeks ago. Oh, uh, yeah. And she's eminently sensible. And uh, as you say, grew up in the uh, Extinction Rebellion scene. And, uh, and when she left, uh, there was a lot of vitriol spread about her uh, because... You know, it's a bit. It's a bit like uh, certain is, is <laughs> hardcore uh, religions. You know, you can uh, you can be a member, or, or Hotel California, I should say. You can check out, but you can never leave. That's right. They do. They react with vehemence against people who who question the wisdom, and anybody who decides to leave that organisation. You know, it's it is really like leaving some religious cult, isn't it? The way they treat them. Yeah, but uh, as you say, her values haven't changed. No. But, I mean, she is absolutely and passionately embracing nuclear energy, mostly on the grounds that it is uh, the only feasible way to get to net zero. She still worries about, um, uh, you know, carbon emissions and so on. Um, bless her. But, uh, you know, as far as you and I are concerned, it's a it's a very good and reliable long term uh, supply of energy. As far as she's concerned, it's it's all that plus lower emissions. Mm. So you know, and that's the thing about CPAC. I mean, you know, I mean, we're we're all being labelled as far right lunatics for going to CPAC, but you know, a generation ago we were just normal, sensible people. Exactly. And uh, exactly. and here we are, and it's as pluralist enough to to include someone like Schellenberger and. Uh, and Zeon Lights. I mean, maybe we could even get Anastasia, Anastasia Palaszczuk along. I mean, she's, she's committed to, uh, what is it, 70% renewables by 2032. This is like some sort of um, auction that, you know, they, they pluck these numbers out of the air. I mean, next week someone will go, oh, we're 80% by 2030, I'm sure. But uh, I mean, surely the only way Anastasia Palaszczuk can achieve that target is through nuclear, surely. 
Well, yes, of course it is, Fred. Of course it is. Uh, well, I mean, you know, she could do it through coal as well. I mean, you know, as you know, there was a proposal up recently for a new coal-fired power station, which would be, you know, uh, high, highly efficient and low emissions up, up at Collinsville, uh, up, in, uh, up in far north Queensland. But that, that's not going to happen, is it? Because the investment's not there. But, you know, I think nuclear, the way it's going, is looking like a better option. And, and the sooner people catch on to this, if you're serious about it, that's, that's the way to go. But because when, when a state goes, oh, this is our target, they cheat, don't they? Whether they're relying on the fact of being able to import power from other states. Exactly. I, I, Just like the ACT says, they only, they only produce uh, um, renewable energy, but <laughs> they, yeah. they rely on New South Wales to to bring in the, you know, the, the coal and, and gas-fired it, energy. It's dangerous because it just makes the grid even even less reliable. And the fact is right now we do rely on Queensland for a lot of that base low power uh, in, the, in the form of coal generation. Uh, and if, if Queensland gives that away, well, we've got to have something else. And if they're not prepared to be, do the sensible thing and, 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 and allow us to at least consider nuclear uh, then I, I just don't can't see it. I can't see how the lights stay on. Fred, exactly. Matt Canavan was on my show last night very quickly. Oh, yeah. uh, he ducked out of the Senate for a very quick chat. And uh, during that time, he pointed out, you know, you and I often get uh, find this, this uh, insanity amusing because sometimes it's the only way to respond to it. But Matt was actually very serious about it. In, in Europe at the moment, they're facing... Uh, a, a, a catastrophic winter, and as Matt pointed out, people are going to die thanks to oh, yeah. thanks to this obsession with renewables. Now that's bad enough, but here in Australia, Chris Bowen and Anastasia Palaszczuk and wh whoever else is is so emphatically uh, advocating for renewables is pushing us down the same road. I mean, next winter people will probably die as a result of these. Australians will probably die. As a result of these policies, it's it's kind of astonishing, isn't it? Yeah, well, uh, yeah. I mean, that's that's uh, our, our mate Bjorn Longborg is always pointing out that you know this. Of course, people die of heat, you know, in small numbers, relatively small numbers. But if there's a heat wave, people die. We know that. But many, many statistically, you're many, many times more likely to die of cold uh, exactly. in the world than you are of heat. And so, cold is an enemy, and yet. Uh, so this is why we need to keep the lights and the power and the heating on because cold is just a, just a killer, and uh, you know you know that. So yeah. I, I think that's 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 right, Fred. We we and I, I just hope the debate is changing. I actually ask. I hope it is. I mean, we we're trying to change it here at here at ADH TV, and you are at the MRC with the research you do. Yeah. But let's talk to speaking of the MRC. Let's talk about that magnificent anniversary you hosted this week. Mm, the fiftieth anniversary of Noel Bonner entering the Senate as the first Indigenous parliamentarian in Canberra. It was actually the 51st anniversary, but we had to delay it last year because of COVID. <laughs> but I tell you what, what an evening. You know, we got a chance to focus on this guy. We heard from Julian Lisa, who'd sat behind him when he gave that magnificent speech to the Constitutional Convention in 1999 in favour of the Queen, in favour of a constitutional monarchy. Very passionate speech. Uh, and there was Brendan Nelson, the former Liberal leader, was there. Brendan has been a great admirer of this man so much that he carries a picture of him around in his wallet. He's a very inspiring character. 
And of course, Jacinta Price, you know, as as heir to that tradition, gave a gave a very moving speech too. So it a, a great evening all round. And I thought about it. You know, we played this really uh, strong video of no, no of Neville Bonner talking in an interview before he died, and he said, "I don't think there'll be another Indigenous." parliamentarian after me. Australians are not ready for it, certainly not in my lifetime. Well, he was right. There wasn't uh, any more in his lifetime. He died in 1999. But, but since then, Fred, there have been 14 more and 11 of them are in parliament right now. So we're in a really uh, important moment where, you know, it, it's become normal, uh, more than normal. It's just unremarkable that you have Indigenous people in Parliament. Well, we've got more than ever, and yet we are being told that our Parliament needs a separate Indigenous voice. I mean, the, the, the irony of this anniversary coming at this time is quite intense, isn't it? It is. And, and, and you know, a lot of people struggle, I do too, with the idea of a voice. And, mm. and you've only got to look at the Indigenous members in Parliament now. Everything from the sort of wide-eyed, lunatic, anti-colonialist nutbag that is Lydia Thorpe. I hope I'm not being too kind to her. <laughs> uh, you know, right through to sort of Jackie Lambie doing her own thing. And then, you know, the, the eminently sensible centrist Jacinta Price at the other end. So between them, I mean, how would you find an Aboriginal voice that sort of summed up everything they all agree on? Exactly. You could probably write what they agreed on on the back of an envelope, you know. And uh, <laughs> it, it, it's, that's the biggest problem for me. Uh, well, the biggest problem for me, um, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that Lydia Thorpe didn't even turn up to this event. No, she didn't. She doesn't turn up to Parliament half the time. Why would she come? I mean, it was a very colonial sort of event, isn't it? Yeah. But, yeah. It, but Neville Bonner was the, had the polar opposite of what she was. He said, I am here to represent the people of Australia, number one, the people of Queensland, number two. I'm here to represent my God because I'm a Christian and, and finally my party. And then overall, I'm here to represent Indigenous people and I feel a great connection and, and duty there. But that's number one was Australia, right? He was there to represent. He saw that if we're going to get anything like true reconciliation, it meant everybody coming together. You know, it, it meant it meant reconciliation does not mean, you know, blaming everything on one side or the other. And yet well, that's Lydia Thorpe's position. Exactly. And since since Neville's time, what we've witnessed is the rise of this uh, the insidious uh, a rewriting of Australian history and recasting the country as some sort of evil colonial force. It's never been like that. It's one of the, as you know, as a migrant, you know we're one of the friendliest, happiest places in the world. Uh, why people want to uh, misinterpret that is uh, beyond me. Yeah, e exactly right. And, and, and Neville Bonner came from the tradition of Martin Luther King Jr. You know, their mission was to make uh, their people true citizens, equal citizens on equal footing, not just citizens in terms of rights, but responsibilities. And both Bonner and Martin Luther King had harsh words to say for some of their own people and said, look, if you if you want these these uh, these wonderful obligations, these wonderful things that come with being a full citizen, you've also got to behave in a citizenly manner, in a decent manner. Or, or, or behave firm but fair dinkum. Fair but fair. 
Because none of that, you get none of yeah. that in this identity politi- politics rhetoric, which is all about rights yeah. and, and all about past grievances and uh, nothing about actually moving forward, you know, as we are as a great, a great nation. Well, we are indeed. Nick Cater, so thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Fred. That's Nick Cater from the Menzies Research Centre and host of Nick Cater's Battleground, Friday nights here on ADH TV. And just before I go, have a look at this graph from the website Trading Economics, representing the price of lithium over the past five years. As you know, lithium is one of the key components of batteries, which until recently was mostly mined to be built into portable devices like phones. But with politicians around the world simultaneously trying to force us to buy electric cars, the price of the stuff has gone through the roof. You can see why. A phone uses less than a gram of lithium. A car uses about eight kilograms of it. Unlike oil, coal and gas, there is a limited supply of this stuff and it's not easy to extract. Unfortunately, most of the future supply of it will come from China. Also, unfortunately, a lot of oil and coal will be burned to mine it. Then even more oil and coal burned to charge it. This, of course, matters not at all to the sanctimonious drivers of electric cars who are convinced that their silent, overpriced fire traps are saving the planet. Our climate change and energy minister, Chris Bowen, was spruiking them while he was in the United States this week. Assuming the type of fake nonchalance that only a lifetime Labor hack could pull off, Bowen tweeted that E Ford 150 has a range of 500 kilometres and is, quote, hugely popular in America, unquote. Wrong on both counts, Chris. Tyler Hoover, a YouTuber with 1.4 million followers, recently tested the range Ford claims the truck has on a full charge and said the whole thing was a, quote, complete and utter disaster, unquote. Even without anything in the truck, the range decreased by 68 miles after traveling only 32. Hoover said, quote, this truck can't do normal things. You would be stopping every hour to recharge, which would take about 45 minutes a pop. And that is absolutely not practical, unquote. As if that matters to Chris Bowen. He doesn't care if it's practical, just as long as it makes him look like a bona fide green tradie to his inner city latte sipping constituents. But back to the price of lithium. The Australian reports today that the price is not going to collapse and that we need to prepare ourselves for it. Andrew Miller of the Benchmark Mineral Intelligence Agency told a conference in Perth this week, quote, people have to treat these as warning sign of what's still to come for the market and for the various aspects of the supply chain over the years to come, unquote. So this is the imported and expensive metal that Chris Bowen wants to stick in our cars when instead we could be powering them with oil extracted from our own backyard. Bowen is as good a minister as he is a fake tradie. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for watching. I'll be floating around the CPAC conference all weekend. So if you've got a ticket, 
come up and say g'day or tune in and watch it right here on ADH TV. And I'll see you next Monday at nine o'clock. Good night.